For weeks now, our news headlines have been dominated by two huge stories with massive implications for our future peace and security. Night after night on TV, we've seen images of desperate people on boats in the Mediterranean or on lorries at Calais on the French border with the UK. These migrants risk life and limb to get into a new country and put the past behind them. And added to this, we've seen the marathon saga of Greek debt and the negotiations with the European Union. Now, they may seem like entirely unrelated news events, and yet they do throw up a key question. Is the nation-state the principal unit of the way that we go about organising travel, defence, trade, and assuming our identity and belonging? Is the nation-state really ethically defensible? My name's Mark Dowd, and on this edition of Things Unseen, the programme for those of you who think maybe there's more to life than the purely material we're going to put nationalism and the state under the spotlight. Is it fair and just that so many of one's life opportunities are determined by something as simple as the front cover of one's passport, assuming you even have one? Or has this system evolved for a reason that, at the end of the day, it's still the best way of carrying out complex tasks such as regulating the movement of people and bringing law and order to our human affairs? With me to discuss this, are Professor Nigel Bigger from the MacDonald Centre for Theology, Ethics and Public Life in Oxford, Dr Stephen Backhouse from St Melitus College, which is an Anglican theological institution, and Professor Sajad Rizvi, Director of the Institute of Arab and Islamic Studies at the University of Exeter. So our panel, a simple question, is the nation-state an ethically defensible unit? Stephen. Well... I think the nation-state just is. I'm more interested in, is the love of it ethical? Is patriotism a virtue or a vice? And I tend to think, along with, I would argue, the earliest Christian writers, people who knew Jesus, or the people who knew the people who knew Jesus, writers of the New Testament, would have been quite surprised to find modern-day Christians patriotically in love with their nations. Okay, Nigel? I think the nation-state is certainly ethically defensible because it is the main way by which we provide the peace, the law and the order without which individuals can barely flourish. And Sajad? I think it depends on whether you're talking about states or nation-states. If we're talking about nation-states, which are about the preference of a particular ethnicity or linguistic group or community, then I think that is increasingly problematic and increasingly irrelevant in the world we live. Whereas states are more defensible? States, insofar as they are mechanisms for providing certain types of services and relations with citizens, unless one is an anarchist, probably are an evil necessity. Very interesting and very clear. Thank you. Nigel, can I start with you? According to traditional Christian theology, what attitude is a Christian meant to take towards government and the state? Because basically the nation state didn't really exist at the time that the scriptures were written. There's a variety of views on this. So on the one hand, you find Jesus and St. Paul somewhat distancing themselves from the Jewish nation, especially St. Paul. And so Jesus recognises the faith of Roman centurions, not just of Jews. Jesus also speaks hyperbolically about his disciples having to hate their mothers and fathers. So on the one hand, there's a pull back from identification with the nation. On the other hand, neither Jesus nor Paul repudiated their Jewish nationality. And then you've got Paul famously in Romans 13 affirming that the governing authorities, which at that time were the imperial Roman governing authorities, are ordained by God to curb evil. 
So there's a certain ambivalence in Christian tradition on the role of the state. When you hear that phrase from Jesus in the Gospels, it says, render unto Caesar what is Caesar and God's what is God. Is that a helpful delineation or is it difficult and confusing for us to interpret and make sense of? Well, I certainly see it as saying that uh, one's loyalty to Caesar, one's loyalty to the state, one's loyalty to the nation is a limited loyalty. Some things are owing to Caesar, some things are owing to the state, but some things are also owing to God. And so loyalty to God has to qualify one's loyalty to the state and relativize the value of the state. But I, I do think that to relativize the value of the state is not to invalidate it. So if I'm faced with two equally needy people, one is a fellow UK passport holder and the other one isn't, does that person, by virtue of having that passport, have any greater claim on my time and energy, or is it completely irrelevant? It's not completely irrelevant. I mean, we'd have to know more about the circumstances, but... There's a sense in which, as a human being, I don't have the power to save the world. I have limited resources of time and energy and wealth. So I cannot help but prioritise how I spend those resources. And it may well be that I do have a prior obligation to some people than others. I mean, normally we think that parents have a special obligation to children. And by extension, it may well be that I have a prior obligation to my fellow citizens, much as though I would like to be able to help everybody. Stephen, you've, in your opening statement, taken a broadly negative stance on the notion of nation-state. Does that mean in your ideal world there wouldn't be passports and state borders? Uh, no, no. I'm With Sajid, they're drawing a line between states and nations. I think we do use those words interchangeably, but they're not the same thing at all. And when we talk about nationality, we are talking about, I guess, essentially tribalism. You're talking about ethnicity and language and inherited traditions. And when you talk about states... You're talking about law and order and passports. And I think that the New Testament type of approach to these things is to be a good citizen without being nationalistic, without being tribalistic. And so I would agree with an approach that says, do what it takes to be peaceable in your country, but don't give it your love. It doesn't deserve your love. It doesn't deserve perhaps killing or dying for. And I would also say it doesn't deserve being hated either. I think if we hate it or love it, we're giving it more than it deserves. Well, let's test that with a concrete example. We're in the prom season now. We will have the last night of the proms at the Royal Albert Hall. Yeah. Uh, Union Jacks, people singing Land of Hope and Glory. Yeah. Is your position that any serious God-fearing Christian really shouldn't be entering into that sort of event, or is it just harmless fun? My position about that kind of flag-waving patriotism is that people's imaginations have been colonised and that they're ascribing to their nationality more importance than it deserves. They're investing their identity in something that it doesn't actually provide for. So I'd see flag-waving not as a great evil, but I see it more as a temptation to resist and to put back in its place and not to allow it to sort of overrun and become the primary means by which you see yourself and your identity in the world. So what sense do you make of the fact that the Queen is the head of state but also the head of the Church of England? Is that completely anathema to you? If the Queen's the head of the state, then I'm fine with that. But if the Queen was the head of my nationality, then I would feel that there's... Are we talking about nations or states here? Well, we're talking about nations and states, aren't we? Because obviously the Queen and the royal family are very much one of the great ingredients, if you like, yep. of patriotism, of yep. our sense of being British and so on. Yep. So it's potentially confusing. So my position is perhaps different for... Christians than for other people. I feel like if you are a Christian, then your approach to the Queen and the flag and all that will be one of benign indifference. 
rather than patriotism, rather than love, and also rather than hate. So I don't think, because I'm not allowed to love the flag and the queen, that doesn't mean that I hate the flag and the queen. It means that I think it's relative. Nigel, yeah. I think, oddly, to take that position is to fail in love, because you're the beneficiary of all sorts of social institutions, some of which are national, from which you benefit. Yeah. But you don't love it back. In other words, you benefit, but you show no gratitude, no sense of your responsibility to make sure that other people and future generations benefit in the way you have, which is a form of love. You want us to be indifferent to these institutions from which we all benefit and you have. Let's bring in Sajjad there. Is there an, yeah. an Islamic perspective on that argument? Where's the ultimate loyalty lie, you know? There's plenty of textual, scriptural evidence for the importance of loving one's home. How one defines home is problematic because, of course, when those texts were first written and disseminated, it would have been a very local sense of what your home is, sort of a particular space, an area, not necessarily a state, not even a larger polity. So it's, it's Just a idea, few square kilometres. It's basically where yeah. you come from and you have strong obligations to widen kinship networks and, of course, to those who live in your local community. So I think the love and mutual support for that local community is probably paramount. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't other elements of belonging and links which go beyond that, which go to a national, go to a supranational, transnational level as well, different types of fellowship, whether we're talking about religious fellowship or whether we're talking about common humanity. And within that, the difference, say the ethnic or the national difference between people is is in fact recognized. It's there in the Quran saying that, you know, humans have been created in different nations and tribes so that they can recognize each other. So they recognize their difference does not cut against their common humanity and the common ties that they have with each other. But let's talk practicalities. Mm. I mean, take two nation states, for instance. Japan, where the average life expectancy is 83. Sierra Leone, where it's 46. We live in a world where our life chances seem to be determined just arbitrarily by the fact that we're born on a particular part of the planet which has passports and status of statehood attached to it. If the Prophet Muhammad were to observe the scenes that we've seen in the Mediterranean recently or at Calais, what would his reaction be to what we should do? I think the basic imperative of helping people who are in need is regardless of where they are. And in terms of how we might prioritise that, I think the priority is based on need. Need and to a certain extent also practicality. So if there's a particular problem somewhere in, say, Southeast Asia, where your practical help will take a long time, then perhaps you need to think about how you can cooperate with others to bring that about. But certainly when you face people who are destitute and are in need, you have to take them in. I think that that's a basic moral imperative. And certainly there's plenty in early Islam which testifies to that, not just taking people in who are coming from the outside, but also at times fleeing. So you've got early Muslims fleeing to Ethiopia and then being taken in by a Christian state, basically, in society and recognizing that this is a good thing. But what happens if those images of people being taken in and rehoused get onto the screens and places where they are suffering and they, they see that positive image and think, well, yeah, this feeds the migration well, scenario I, I, even more. So haven't you got a trade-off between order and justice here sometimes? I, I think one has to also be quite sensible about it and realise that you have to have an engagement which is much wider. So, of course, the European Union has been trying to engage with North Africa for quite a while, in particular, and with West Africa, and, and how you deal with questions of economic migration or even refugees fleeing certain conflict zones. And that has to continue. It's very important. I personally am very much against a notion that we just build a wall 
and sort of close up the borders and say, well, you know, we can only take in so many people. Quite simply, when you look at, for example, asylum applications across Europe, it's quite clear that France and Britain are quite low down in terms of success rates compared to other places. And again, I'm slightly disturbed when people talk about this idea that, of course, everyone wants to come to Britain. I don't think that's true at all. I think people are going wherever they can, which might be possible. Stephen, do you think that one ought to be looking at churches, mosques and the communities associated with mosques actually doing more at places like Dover and Cali to have a presence there, to welcome people, to actually supplement the forces of the state to help people? Well, well, it's interesting. I was going to agree with you right up to the end, and then you said supplement the forces of the state. I feel like if the state starts to see religious communities as little subsections of the state, they're going to get into trouble because both Islam and Christianity are basically two of the most international, supranational organizations going. Christianity, for instance, has roots far deeper than the state of England, and I dare say will outlast the state of England. So when the state of England comes along and asks the church for help, it's actually asking Christianity for help about something that is... Christianity's got concerns far greater, in fact, than making England the best country it can be. Christianity has concerns. It's very good for telling you how to love the neighbor in front of you whose needs you are aware of, It's not so great for telling you how to make England shore up its borders and be the best it can be, because those two things run in opposite directions, I think. I think making the nation-state run smoothly is not actually the church's concern. But, for instance, in a scenario where we were to have a much more relaxed policy about accepting larger numbers of people to come and settle here, how does one balance the rights of those people to escape poverty and terrorism compared with the rights of indigenous people who are already here to basically live in a world where they're not psychologically feeling overrun or they're feeling unsettled Mm. or they don't like this change and the disruption in their life. Do we have to weigh these off? Well, this is where Nigel and I disagree because I feel like you could actually make a case, you can definitely make a case that to keep the nation state as good as it can be, you need to enforce border control for tribal reasons. We're only going to give benefits to people who look like us and sound like us as much as possible. Quite arguably, that is what you need to do to keep a nation state going. And I would look at that and I would say, that is precisely what I as a Christian am not allowed to do. Therefore, I'm not allowed to be patriotic. I'm not allowed to be a pro-nation state person in this world because nation states, in order to be the best they can be, need to be tribally enforcing their needs at the expense of other people. And that's what I'm not allowed to do as a Christian. And Nigel, is that a fair depiction of your position? Well, I want to go back a wee bit here and quarrel a bit with both Sajid and Stephen because I don't agree that a nation has to do with ethnic purity or tribalism. Maybe at some point in history there was an ethnically pure nation. There certainly aren't any now. I mean, Mm. in this country, in Britain, you know, my ancestors are French. Sajid's probably weren't Anglo-Saxon. Stephen's Canadian. So a nation and the people are ethnically mixed. Same thing to say is, you know, our borders aren't closed. And that's why this issue of migration is such a political topic right now. I think I remember reading recently that last year, net migration was a quarter of a million. And let me say, let me make quite clear that, of course, I agree that receiving immigrants can be enormously beneficial, both in terms of economic stimulus and in terms of cultural enrichment. However, you may have noticed that in 2013, two card-carrying liberal intellectuals, one David Goodhart, uh, the other Paul Collier, Oxford's premier development economist, both published books 
in which they conceded that large-scale migration, sudden migration, which results in large numbers of people of very different cultures coming into a country like Britain and congregating in the same part of the country, can lead to all sorts of social problems. And so even they are saying, they're not, they're, no one's arguing for a closed door. What they're arguing for is managed or regulated immigration. Nigel, let, let me bring in yeah. a quote here from Scripture, which is that citation from Paul to the Galatians. For all of you who were baptised into Christ and you've clothed yourselves with Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. This seems to be Absolutely. a really, really clear description of a kind of universal humanity where if God looked at all of us, he wouldn't see any of these passports. He wouldn't see any skin colour. He wouldn't see nations and states. He would just see people. I don't disagree with, with <laughs> any of that. Of course, there is a respect in which all human beings are children of God. All of us are sinners in need of the forgiveness of God, so we have, a, we have an equal status. But in many other respects, we're not equal. And the fact that all human beings, be they Chinese or Indian or Peruvian, all of them are certain respect and care, I do have to prioritize. And even Sajjad suggested we do that according to need. But then, of course, there are different kinds of need, aren't there? Those who are currently adrift on boats in the Mediterranean if some of them are in danger of drowning, we need to rescue them. Having rescued them, whether we permit them to settle in Italy or in northern England, or whether we try and resettle them back in their home countries, is a moot point. It's not clear to me. Uh, some of them may be seeking political asylum, in which case I think we should take them in. Others are economic migrants from Eritrea and the Sudan or Saharan Africa. The fact that they're probably amongst the most enterprising people of their own countries, and the fact that they're leaving is damaging their own countries. So... If we want to do the best for them and for their countries, the best thing for us to do is to do our best to help stabilise their countries politically and help them flourish economically there. Sajad, um, yeah. there is in the life of the Prophet Muhammad, if I'm not mistaken, there is a story about him having to flee from Arabia to settle in Abyssinia. Uh, or, Ethiopia, yes. Yeah, and this seems to be saying that there are times when you have to migrate and you have to move and there is no great moral obligation to stay where you are and people should be welcoming and accepting of you if you have to make that move? Um, I mean, there are a number of things that one is certainly to preserve yourself and your family and those around you to migrate obviously makes sense. There are other ways of dealing it. I mean, for example, there's dissimulating sort of basically saying, no, you're not who people think you are and then trying to fit in. It entirely depends on different ways in which people might deal with that question. But certainly one can migrate for all sorts of reasons. The simple one is, is to save your life. But of course, there could be the idea of migrating to have greater opportunities for yourself and your family, I think is perfectly reasonable as well. We've always had migration across the globe. The question is what's changed and what's changed is primarily this 19th century idea of the nation state, which basically sets up certain types of barriers and the whole idea of a passport. I mean, I don't think a passport is a pre-modern concept at all, really, or at least not in the sense that we use it nowadays. That's something quite different. And when it comes to migration. Nigel was talking about David Goodhart's work and others. I'm slightly disturbed by that because ultimately the government has, I think, a responsibility to local communities around the country, of course, but they have a responsibility actually to be honest with people and not to kind of whip up prejudice, which unfortunately I think the government has been doing. This government and the previous government has been doing this. There is no sensible debate about immigration. As we look at these concepts of state and nation-state, what significance, if any, do we attribute to the fact that 
ISIS, so-called Islamic State, as we presently call it, that have chosen that name as part of their nomenclature, their name for yeah. themselves. There are two things there. Um, one is, of course, the, the classical notion of the term they use, dola, just really means some sort of polity. It doesn't necessarily mean state. But on the other hand, they still have this notion, which is common to Islamists, of establishing an Islamic state. What is quite interesting about that is it's very deliberately trying to break down national barriers, and yet in practice it can't do that. Because one thing which is very interesting is that there is, and this happened with Al-Qaeda before, although there is this kind of pretense of something which is transnational and a global phenomenon, in fact what tends to happen is you have very localized leaderships. And so you have the leadership of this particular area making a statement. So you've got leadership in Iraq, you've got one in Syria, you've got one in Eastern Arabia, etc. And they actually do work quite separately and they issue their own statements. So it's not really the case that it is a properly kind of anti-national movement at all. That's interesting. Stephen, I want to press you one particular point, and it harks back to mm-hmm. something we heard from Nigel earlier on in the discussion. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, you know, in Christian tradition, we have a notion of a fallen world, mm-hmm. a flawed human nature. Mm-hmm. Aren't nation states or the state system as well? I know I'm conflating the two, but you yeah, can yeah. interpret it as you like. Isn't that the price we pay for the fact that we don't live in a perfect world and we have to messily yeah. organize our affairs and that's just the inevitable, we ought to just take it on the chin and accept it? Well, yeah. I mean, you started by quoting the famous Romans 13 where you were supposed to submit to the ruling government because they're there to wield the sword for order and to punish the wrongdoer. I mean, I look at that and precisely say, well, here's an example of this isn't something that fell from heaven. This is a result of humans' fallenness, not as a result of humans' fruitfulness. This is something that's plan B. This is something that's there to put up with for a time. But should a serious Christian be seeking to transform and overthrow and lead arguments for a different kind of world? Because unlike Islam, where I found mm. correct, Sajab, we don't have that sense of the kingdom of God, which is a very interesting concept in Christianity. We are obliged to try and bring the kingdom of God here on earth. It's there mm. the prayer of the Our Father. So in a sense, we're always fighting to transcend and to change what's here in front of us well, this for, is, in a better way. This is where the earliest Christians saw themselves precisely. They used kingdom language, which is interesting. They used political language to describe themselves, not, air quotes, religious language. They used political language, kingdom. And they saw themselves as moving through the world as strangers and aliens, as immigrants in the world, lodging for a time amongst other kingdoms and refusing to worship those kingdoms, but just being good citizens and getting on with it. And Nigel accused me earlier of being ungrateful (laughs) to my countries. There is a sort of a sense of gratitude, which is fine. But if I'm then turned around and being asked, well, now that we've given you these things, because this is what we're supposed to do as a country, if we've allowed our citizens some sort of freedom and basic safety, now what you need in return is is you need my loyalty and my love. I would say, no, you've asked for more than is owed to you. No servant is given a great reward just for doing their job. I'll call that a score draw between you and Nigel on that one. But, but, I, but I will move on, Nigel, to ask you, I think that's a very pertinent question. As probably the person on the panel who's most easy and comfortable defending the status quo and speaking about the positive elements of the nation state, let me put to you one major criticism. Look at something like climate change and look at the paralysis of our inability to come up with international agreements. Aren't the naked pursuits of state interests 
responsible for the fact that we as a human family hadn't made any real progress on this issue. And isn't that something that we can lay squarely at the door of this nation state as a unit? Yeah, the fair comp, Gov. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, um, I, it's very well, pertinent well, well, as well because we're coming up to yes. the Paris negotiations this December when basically people are saying it doesn't matter where you live on the planet, we're all going to have yeah. to unequally, yeah. perhaps depending on where you are, suffer the consequences of a changing climate. Yeah. I would lay the responsibility at the foot of the sinful egoism of human beings, which can manifest itself at any of the, the different social levels that Sajad talked about, whether it's family, whether it's empire, whether it's global state, whether it's nation state. Or lack of courage um, amongst leaders in those nation states, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. But I want to say the problem of egoism is not something that is peculiar to the nation state. And for sure, the difficulty of reaching agreements on this enormously important problem is evidence of the limited horizons, limited sympathies of nations and their leaders which is why international agreement is so important and the creation of international institutions, which we have made considerable progress in since the Second World War. But I don't really see any way forward except a combination of a growing sense of urgency working its way through politically to produce the political will to make the agreements. I don't see any way past that, really. But I agree with you, it is a limitation. But it's not a limitation that is limited to nation-states. I would like to ask each of you, just on the basis of what you've heard, as a closing thought or comment, is there anything that you want to add to the discussion? Stephen? Okay, well, I would maybe like to say that we've identified some very real problems. Pollution, war, migration, inability for different groups to mingle with each other. I don't think any of those problems will be helped by ramping up state national language. All of those problems need to have people have an imagination that goes beyond their skin color or their language or their tribal loyalty. And those are real problems that need real solutions. And the state is not actually going to be the answer to some of those problems. In fact, a lot of the times, it's the reason why it's a problem in the first place. Nigel. Two points. One is to agree with Stephen that from a Christian point of view, Christians are pilgrims in the world and we don't attach absolute loyalty to any state. On the other hand, following the prophet Jeremiah, even those of us who are pilgrims and exiles, uh, we have a duty to seek the welfare of the city. Second point is that although we all agree that the national efforts to deal with climate change have not been very successful, no one has yet suggested, and I hope they wouldn't, that what we need is a global state. I hope they wouldn't because a, a global state having monopoly of power would be beyond resisting if it turned tyrannical. Therefore, we're still left with the necessity for an international solution, that's to say, an agreement between states. There's no solution beyond that. And Sajad, do you have a final comment you'd like to share with us? I think, uh, to a large extent, we have our primary obligations and priorities with what is actually quite local. And part of that is not just about, and this is a moral imperative, I think, it's not just about helping those in need, but it's also about basically really reflecting on our consumption. So to a large extent, something like climate change can best be served by people really thinking about, do you really need to eat so much meat? Do you really need to travel, use the car all the time, every day? It's those sorts of personal choices which we need to reflect a lot more about. On that note, I'd really like to thank my three guests today, Dr. Stephen Backhouse, Professor Sajad Rizvi and Professor Nigel Bigger for sharing their insights on this edition of Things Unseen. 
I'm sure as we look to the future that issues such as migration, people fleeing drought and floods due to the changing climate are going to make ethical questions about our attitude to the nation state, not less, but actually more and more topical. My name is Mark Dowd, and you've been listening to Things Unseen, which is a CTVC production. And you can hear this program again and find other editions of Things Unseen at www.thingsunseen.co.uk.